Welcome to People from the Program, a podcast highlighting alumni from the NYU Music Business Program. Welcome everyone to People from the Program, the podcast that highlights the career journeys of alumni from the NYU Music Business Program. I'm your host, Bryce Butler, founder and chairman of the NYU Music Business Alumni Network and a proud alum myself of the NYU Music Business Program. So on today's show, our guest is Sam Tall, Senior Director of Music and Content Operations at Studio 71. Sam has been an artist manager and creator monetization expert for 12 years. He currently oversees content monetization and platform policy for a network of almost 900 YouTube creators, including some of the biggest names in music on YouTube, such as Boyce Avenue, Postmodern Jukebox, Pomplamoose, Ali Sherlock, Sam Sue, and many more. Sam, welcome to the show. Hey, Bryce. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, it's great to have you on, man. I mean, you got a super interesting background, and I'm excited to to dive into it with you. Me too. You know, I, I think it's always interesting to hear what uh, classmates, especially those classmates I didn't get to uh, intersect with in my studies, uh, what they're up to and, and have them be able to hear what I'm up to. You're kind of creating this uh, one-to-many networking device. I love it. Yeah, it's it's exciting to do. I appreciate that. And, you know, we just want to we just want to let the people know the cool alumni that we have and what they're doing. <laughs> I think that's important. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so let me start with the first question, which mm-hmm. is tell me about your journey to the NYU Music Business Program. Were you well? Well, first, let the people know. Were you uh, were you in the graduate program? Or were you in the undergrad program? I was in the undergraduate, okay. and so the the timeline that precedes me being in the program is all about high school right. and things like that. I grew up playing music. I grew up um, first uh, with piano, and then moving to uh, jazz saxophone, and I did that for uh, basically all the way through yeah. high school. And somewhere in middle school, I also picked up guitar. And so during high school, I was playing uh, in jazz band in school and then in uh, a garage rock band um, outside of school with some friends. And actually my little brother as well, who's a drummer and he's on tour with uh, an artist called Francis Forever. Um, And uh, so the music kind of runs in the family uh, a little bit. I didn't have parents that were musical, but they were very encouraging of it. We were always listening to music. Um, I the acoustic guitar that hangs on my wall was one that my dad bought from a friend of his in high school and kind of has become a family heirloom of sorts. So the the sort of passion for music kind of runs really deep. And um, even uh, my my older brother and my younger sister, uh, neither of whom are musicians, we all played in school band. And so that was kind of a running theme. And it came to pass that as I was kind of finishing up my my high school experience, I was thinking about whether I wanted to possibly pursue a music uh, performance as a career. Um, but I also had this inkling that like the business would be really interesting to me. Mm. Um, I was booking the shows for the band I was in. I was uh, booking the studio time, uh, figuring out how to build an audience on uh, MySpace and Facebook at the time. Um, this is like in the late 2000s. And um, that all seemed to really click in my brain just as much as playing the music did. So I thought, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm a producer, maybe I'm uh, some kind of creative type manager or a collaborator. And at the time, this is, you know, 2009 when I'm looking at 
uh, colleges, there weren't that many schools that had a program. I think NYU, Drexel, Belmont, Berkeley College of Music, USC, and a few others, but not that many. And a lot of schools had music performance programs, but not many of them had coursework in the business side. And so uh, I applied and got into NYU, very fortunately. And I went with this intent that it was going to be um, from the perspective of an artist, but with the business knowledge that would keep me safe from predatory business practices, you know, really thinking far out, like maybe I'm going to sign to a label someday and I don't want to get taken advantage of because I've heard enough horror stories. Um, and so that was kind of the intent with which I went to NYU, but almost immediately, like in the first semester, and we started learning about how labels work and how publishing works and how tours work and things like that, just the basics in the first semester, I realized I wasn't as passionate about being a performer. And also I was suddenly surrounded by people that were phenomenally more musically capable than I was. Mm. I thought I was good, but I went to a small school, <laughs> you know, and they went to serious jazz programs or arts high schools and things like that, where they could get really sort of like um, conservatory style tutelage at the high school level which I didn't have access to. Um, and frankly, I don't think I would have had the dedication uh, or wherewithal to take advantage of it if I did. Um, and so they, and still some of the musicians I know that tour in bands and play in, 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 uh, in New York and around the country and around the world and stuff are some music performance kids I went to NYU with and they are freaking phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, I would never you know, even think that I was gonna be on their level. And so I figured I should do what I feel like I'm doing better than they are, if they're going to do that better than me. And that happens to be understanding the business side and really applying myself to that knowledge. And I just sort of, you know, naturally started soaking it up like a sponge. It just was very sort of innate to me. Um, and it didn't, it wasn't a challenge to pick up that information. And so I kind of started just leaning in that direction very fast. And that's kind of where it all began. <laughs> Sam, you and I, we have this in common. When I was in school, I, I did jazz band um, and concert band. I played the saxophone. I played alto, tenor, and baritone. And I remember- I never touched baritone. I you never know what's funny? Baritone. I was an alto player through and through until ninth grade when in concert band, they're like, we have seven altos and one tenor. Who wants to be tenor two? And I picked up tenor two. Um, cause I was like, sure, I I'll, I'll get more action that way. Like I will be able to pick up more parts and I won't be stuck like alto four, you know, <laughs> something crazy like that as a freshman, when you have like 12th and 11th graders that are going to take the first and second chair parts. Um, but yeah, I never touched baritone. No, I think if I can remember, I think I got to baritone because we did not have a Barry sax player. And I was also a, a football player in high school. I grew up. <laughs> so you had lung capacity. So, so they were like, okay, the, this, this bigger guy, you're going to play the baritone sax. And so when people would call, when people would talk to me and say, oh, are you going to, are you going to pick this up? Or, or I should say, keep it going into college. Um, Cause I ended up playing football in college. Um, it was like, no sir, Bob, the amount of practice that you have to do to be good at that on that level, as you go, I do not have the patience or time for it. So I well, totally, to I mean, it's like, you know, it backs up whenever, whenever high school was over. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the athleticism, um, and the dedication to building yourself as an athlete is not that dissimilar as it happens from being a professional musician. It's a lot of very focused, very strategic exercise, right? So that you can perform at a level that is technically below your maximum capabilities when the time comes because you've exceeded the level that you need yeah. 
in order to be at your peak, right? And I, you know, already when it came to playing in high school, I was starting to realize that I wasn't that big into practicing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and so that was going to be a natural limiter to being a professional musician anyway. I really liked playing. I liked doing it for fun. I liked being in a band. It wasn't about money because I was 16, 17 years old. But um, when it came to college, I was like, you know, I still want to play. I still want to hang out with people that do that and, and everything. But, you know, and I did a couple um, like songwriter showcases and things um, in in uh, New York when I was a college student. And that was a lot of fun. Mm. Um, but it was the kind of thing where I knew I was up there with people that wrote better songs than I did. And they played mm. their instrument better than I did. And I was just feeling glad to hang out with them because they were the cool people to me. They were like, these are the artists that I think are going to be great someday. And I want to be around them. Um, and I actually, I, I played a showcase um, at the Bitter End for oh, New York Song Circle. And uh, one of the other artists on that lineup was Kevin Garrett, who at the time was an undergrad in the music technology program. And then Kevin and I got to be friends through that lens. And then after college, I started managing him as he went off into his career. Um, I had been managing a couple other artists before that, but he was like the first one that, for me at least, uh, really got traction and really went someplace and was basically a second college education. That was sort of my grad school was managing Kevin. Oh, nice. Shout out to Kevin. Um, yeah, no, that's that's great. And also similar to your story, that's what ignited my kind of love, passion for music. I'm always listening to music, but when you get to, to go to those bands and start playing along with ath- athletics, that started my journey to kind of be on this path to really pursue what a career in, in the music business and the music space would look like. So I guess for you, this kind of leads to my second question. You know, I went to the grad program, you went Mm. to the undergrad program. So there are some similarities, but also some some big differences. So what would you say your favorite class from the program was and why was it? Oh, that's so good. Um, I think the class that I really sank my teeth into the most perhaps not the one that I expected to find the most interesting, but the one that I really just felt myself leaning all the way in on was music publishing, mm-hmm. um, which at the time that I took it was taught by Jennifer Blakeman, who it, it then was C, uh, SVP of A&R at Universal Music Publishing Group. And I'm like, how cool is it that the head of A&R at a major music publisher is my publishing teacher? That's yeah. the coolest thing I can think of. And I want every piece of knowledge she can possibly share. Mm-hmm. Um, Jen Blakeman, phenomenal executive and has done some, some stuff since leaving Universal that's really, really impressive. Um, and I felt like it made a lot of sense to me and I couldn't l- really sort of establish why I was so like keen on this. Um, after that class, I went and interned at Downtown Music, which at the time was a small independent record label with a side publishing company. Mm -hmm. And I was interning and just doing some basic, you know, intern level work. But I realized how much of that classroom information really helped me in the internship. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, in retrospect, and we'll obviously talk more about this, but in retrospect, like that was the the uh, catalyst for everything I've done since. And a lot of the work that I do now is still rooted in the things I learned you know, back in that must have been fall of 2011 or spring of 2012. Man, I mean, that's that's so great that that gave you that foundation, because obviously Mm -hmm. 
in the undergrad program, you know, they have more time with you. You know, ours is two years, so you're cramming yeah. in and fitting in a lot of exactly. information. Whereas for you at the undergrad level, you know, there were, I think the robustness of the classes you, you could take and the things you could do, it's a little bit different. You know what though, I was always, um, especially as I started managing artists, I, the first artist I managed, I started in spring of 2011 when I was still a freshman. Um, and it was the kind of thing where there was an artist that I knew. I went to a music camp when I was 14 and this artist was starting to, to get some traction. His name is Ryan Casada, and he's still out there doing amazing touring work right now as a folk singer. Um, he was somebody I met at music camp and then several years later reconnected with. And he's like, I'm just so busy with, I'm like starting to tour regionally and doing, he was like from Long Island. He's like, I'm in, New, in Long Island. I'm in New Jersey. I'm in Connecticut. I'm in Massachusetts. I'm in, in Maryland. And I, you know, there's so much going on. I'm just driving myself around going to these little house shows and I don't know how to keep up with it all. And I said, I'm learning how this works in school. We should maybe just try it out and see how it goes. And we tried it out and saw how it went for four years. Like mm. that's kind of, it was sort of an accidental, let's just give it a shot. And we just kept giving it a shot and we went on tour. It was wonderful. Still a good friend of mine. Um, and at the time that I was an undergrad, I was managing Ryan. I had picked up one or two other artists. This was before Kevin. And I was like very dedicated to going down that path. And um, Catherine Moore, who uh, was the director of both programs for a brief yes. period of time. And I said to Dr. Moore, I said, I heard there's an artist management class in the grad program and I wish I could take it. Is there any way I can audit it or do an independent study or something like, I just feel like I need to know what happens in that class. And she said, honestly, just read this book. This is the book that we teach. Read the book. Let me know if you have any questions. And I have that book on my shelf, Paul Allen's artist management uh, textbook. And that. that set up between that. And then the, the, the texts that we used for Jen Blakeman's publishing class, um, was the root of everything I did for like five years after that. I, I the publishing side became a big piece of like going to artists and talking about how publishing works. They're like, that's insane that you understand this space because all we hear from everybody is that it's too hard to understand and you seem to understand it. You can take care of our affairs. Oh, and I, I knew like it was more than just the one thing that needed to happen. So I wanted to figure out the rest of it, but it was, it became a really good calling card after a while. Man, that's great. So, I mean, that leads right into my next question. I mean, is is the obvious thing your one main takeaway from the program, the publishing piece, or not to assume, would you say it would be something else that was your one main takeaway from the program? I think the thing that I took away most from the program is that all of the information has to be applied. There, mm. It does not do anything for you in a vacuum. I think there are other... Uh, sorts of academic pursuits, thinking particularly in terms of classical literature or math or disciplines of science or even some disciplines of finance and things like that, where even if you don't follow a career that uses that every day, it enriches you in a serious way by being, you know, a, a well-studied person in ancient Greek philosophy, or you have a really deep understanding of physics or biology, and so you understand how the world around you works, or finance, and you understand how the economy works and how that plays into your personal life. But with the music business stuff, it's so specific. And I actually really worried about this coming out of college that the, that I had studied something too niche to ever mm. branch out. And I, like the things I knew were going to box me in. Um, 
And, but at the time that was actually useful because I was still very much following that um, artist management track. And so I wanted to know everything about the music business that I could possibly know because I knew it's a small world. Not everybody knows everything. If I can try my best to know everything, I will stand out and I will have that advantage. But in hindsight, because um, I, I finished the program at the end of 2013 uh, as a member of class of 2014, actually. But um, in hindsight, now almost 10 years later, I'm looking back and saying, all that information, there's lots of things that are broadly ap applicable. Intellectual property being one of those things that is just not a strictly musical thing. It has so many other applications that are important to pay attention to. Absolutely. But the things that we learned in the classes were highly specific for good reason to the music business. And that knowledge only works if you use it. And um, that was eminently true right away. I actually, my internship at Downtown Music was parlayed into a full-time job. Well, 35 hours, technically part-time, but it was basically <laughs> full-time. Um, I was a, I was the receptionist uh, at Downtown Music for a period of time mm. um, and helping out with sync admin um, because the VP of sync at that point did not have any kind of assistant or coordinator. It was a small team, I think of less than 30 people. And now the company's like three or 400, but yeah. at the time it was super small. And, um, and so I was helping him out with some stuff and it was incredible that I knew the language, even if I didn't know what to do with it, I knew kind of what we were talking about. And that was incredibly vital at that point to build trust, not just with the VP of licensing, but with Justin Kalifowitz, who was the CEO at the time. Now he's the chairman. Yeah. Um, and some other folks that worked at downtown um, that like established a level of um, peerage, if you will. It mm -hmm. made me kind of one of them because I knew how to speak the language and I knew what to do with it after a certain period of time. And um, had I not really kind of approached it from that perspective of the entire point of this coursework is to use it at a job as opposed to just to have knowledge, I don't think I would have um, been able to accelerate the way that I did. Um, and I think that's maybe the biggest key takeaway is I, I pushed really hard to, um, put it to work. I almost, I almost dropped out when I got the job. Honestly, I was like, I don't need the, the school anymore. I Ooh. have the job. Why do I need the school if I already I have the cool. job? And I was thinking yeah. that from like the jazz musician perspective of, well, if a, you know, touring jazz big band wants to take me, why am I going to study? I'm already a professional musician. Right. Right. Um, and that obviously is not necessarily applicable to the white collar world, but it was sort of a mentality that I had and I'm glad I finished, but I was also very much glad that, um, I was putting it to work right away and learning how the world around me in the music industry was revolving as opposed to just like relying on facts and figures and hoping that it would carry me forward. No, that's so interesting, Sam. So, so let's back up a little bit then, because, okay. okay, you've got all of this knowledge information, um, and now you've graduated from the program, and you said your first internship was at downtown. Now, mm -hmm. when you got this internship, did you, when you interviewed for it, did you structure it in a way where you were able to go in and then slowly start to showcase the publishing knowledge that you had? Or did this kind of grow over time where you just learned a lot? Like you had the learnings from the program, but then it kicked into overdrive when you got to downtown. Like, like how did that start and then lead to that full-time position? I think I was just annoying, um, to be honest. <laughs> um, I don't know that it was, it was kind of unstructured at the time. Um, and we were kind of left to our own devices to either take requests from whoever or to just kind of work on a project. I, 
I got told this early on. And so it became sort of a facet of my personality that I was a natural leader, which is a really dangerous thing to tell a 14 year old, um, because then they're going to think that they're the leader in a hundred percent of situations. (laughs) And I've had to unlearn some of the ego that comes along with that. Mm, Um, but as an intern, I was like, I'm studying this. I'm, I was interning along some, alongside some students that, um, did, weren't studying necessarily music business or music industry. They were maybe in media industries or general business or music performance or something. So I was like, okay, I have a, I have a leg up on some of these kids. And so let me put myself forward as this like more knowledgeable colleague. And, um, so I, I kind of led on a couple of the intern projects that we did. And then I also was like perhaps arrogantly inquisitive to some of the uh, other like mid-senior type folks that worked at the company. I would engage them in conversation, maybe even interrupting what they were working on. I would ask for things to do and seek out, um, you know, their time and their input. And just, I really wanted them to see me as somebody who was eligible to be in the club. You know, like I wanted to be one of them and I wanted them to see me as eligible for that someday and that someday better come soon. And so by the end of that, it was a summer internship. And so I, it started like right after Memorial Day. And I think by like beginning of August, I was like, listen, I've been having a great time and I really want to keep this going, but uh, I'm also in a position where I need to make a little bit of money to like buy groceries and and things. I'm still living in dorms. I don't cost a lot, but I do have some basic expenses that I need to pay for. Um, And if there's anything that I can do to be, you know, like part-time here or something, I really want to do that and I'll figure out how to make it work. I just, I want to work. And I think there was a couple of people that were like, well, I don't know, but you know, send me your resume. Maybe there's something. Uh, and then somebody else heard, I guess, picked up on like, oh, we're asking Sam for his resume. And somebody said like, hey, can you send me your resume too? I want to take a look at that. And I have no idea why, what they, what compelled them to do this, or if they weren't actually as compelled as I felt they were at the time. But ultimately, it materialized in a conversation where the then receptionist was being promoted to be an executive assistant, and they needed somebody to replace it. It's always easy to pick up an intern who has a couple of months of knowing how the business works and the names of the people, and you don't have to train them for quite as long. And so they said, as long as you stay in school and you can get your degree, we want somebody technically on paper, we want to have somebody with a bachelor's degree, but you're getting your bachelor's degree. As long as you stay in school and you can juggle your time effectively you know, we're interested in offering you this, this part-time job and it's not making, it's not very much money. I'm like, that's okay. Cause I don't have rent to pay yet. <laughs> um, and it was sort of like a great match. It was really detrimental to my academic performance. I'll say that right up front. Like mm. I was way more interested in the job than I was in doing my homework. And the <laughs> two things at once were really hard to juggle for me. Mm-hmm. Um, such that like after a year of that, I, they, they were like, well, we don't have anywhere to promote you to and you're graduating soon. And this course that you have in your senior practicum is like Wednesdays from one thirty to three. And that's a terrible time to be gone from the office as a receptionist. And so, right. you know, if you, you have to choose whether you're going to continue to do this job or you're going to go finish your degree. And I said, well, I guess I'm leaving then. And immediately my grades shot back up. <laughs> so it was very clear what the contributing factor was. Um, but that's kind of, that was my time at downtime was like a little over a year, including the internship. And it was, um, a, a sort of a wonderful environment for me to kind of really, um, understand the, 
time commitment, it wasn't a hard job, but it was definitely a time commitment and it was definitely a responsibility. And there were things that you could get wrong and have an impact on other people around you and not just yourself. And so I think that was vital. And it also meant that once I did graduate, um, four months later, um, because it was August to December, I guess. So like four or five months later, I already had a year of full-time work on my resume. And so I walked out of NYU already employed in another job at the end. I had lined it up. And a lot of my fellow classmates, we were, you know, it, it was May of 2014. I had been at that point working at YouTube for two months. I'd worked very, very briefly at a business management office before that. And so on graduation day, May of 2014, I'm walking across with my friends who are like, oh yeah, you know, I'm interviewing for these jobs. I'm, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I've applied for a bunch of things. And I'm like, I think I'm going to go back to my office after this. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, You know, it's so interesting because, so now that the downtown experience is over, we can Mm -hmm. start, we can start to look at kind of that you know, that experience that extends past that you start to go on this employment journey. So the next stop for you, I guess you're about to get into is YouTube. So what did you take from downtown to go start working at YouTube? What were you doing there? And how did that begin? Um, the thing I think that was, I overestimate, I over, uh, what's the word? I overestimated what it would require at YouTube, to be frank. Um, because the job I thought like, oh, it's YouTube, like everybody that works at Google is a genius and you need to be incredibly <laughs> smart to do the yeah. work, whatever it is. I don't know what they're doing in there, but whatever they're doing, it's the smartest people in the world making the best internet products on the planet that the history has ever seen. And everybody's got to be really smart. And this is like the biggest shot I've ever had in my life. Meanwhile, it was like a data entry job, just watching like one video at a time, cataloging what music was in it, making sure we had like record mm. from the PROs as to who owned it and, and, and making sure that they got their royalties from, from whoever. So it helped that I took it really seriously going into it and I prized it and I wanted to have that role and do that work. And I was very passionate about it. And I also already knew what PROs were, how royalties worked. Um, I mean, a lot of what we had to do with, with downtown when I was helping out with the sync uh, VP was, we represented one writer who maybe had 2.5% and we needed, we needed to tell CBS or whoever who to go to, to go get the other shares cleared, right? And so we, a lot of times, if we didn't have that information, because metadata is infamously messy, mm-hmm. we would just go to ASCAP or BMI and look it up and say, hey, here's who you should go talk to, as if we knew them personally. You should go talk to our friends at Sony about the, the rest of this. But it's like, no, we just looked that up two seconds before writing that email. Um, and the <laughs> fact that I knew how to do that um, was a vital skill because we did that a lot in understanding who owns what music on YouTube, that the metadata has not been provided by publishers, but we have a obligation to pay them. So how do we square that circle? We just have to find it ourselves. And so I was like one of like seven or eight new recruits on like a temp hire basis. It was like contractor level. Um, and I thought like, oh, I'm going to be full-time at YouTube. It's going to be amazing. I was a contractor working on a team of people that had low budget to get this done. But the only reason that we were there was because they hadn't figured out how to automate it yet. Um, And so they needed people to do it, but they needed them to be on site because it was sensitive information. So I did that for about a year. Um, It was tough because it's very repetitive stuff. 
but yes. I got a really, really clear vision of how digital platforms work. And that has served me so well, both from the artist management perspective and now in what I'm doing with content and creator rights, understanding how a platform like this works, where every party from the viewers to the creators, to the rights owners, everybody's responsible for providing their own information. There is no, um, sort of central clearinghouse for it, if you will. Right. Um, mm -hmm. There's no, you can say kind of whatever, you can input whatever information you want and they just kind of have to go with it. There are certain rules as to why, but there's nobody on the other side saying that's false, at least not until it becomes a problem. YouTube is wow. far and away the most like self-service of all these media platforms. I'm thinking of like Spotify, Apple, and Amazon, where you send your, your media to them. It goes through like 17 different quality controls before mm -hmm. you get confirmation or uh, rejection. Right. Um, and YouTube is just not like that. So that being my first experience was really unique. It was sort of like reminds me now that I'm saying it out loud of I had to take jazz music theory uh, as one of my classes as a music mm. major, music business major. Mm -hmm. We had three semesters of classical and then one semester of jazz. And I had grown up playing jazz saxophone, as we talked about. Um, my classmates came from more classical backgrounds. They maybe played violin, cello, piano, they did opera singing, whatever. So to them, like the structure of classical counterpoint made a lot of sense and I always struggled. And then we did jazz theory and it's like floating key changes and stuff. And they're like, yeah. I have no idea what's going on. I'm like, to yeah. me, it's essential. It's two, five, one, two, five, one, baby. Like, come on, right. let's go. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> so the whole idea of just move with it and let it move you really made a lot of sense. And YouTube's kind of that way where like the entire platform is just a living, breathing beast of everyone's information, whereas other platforms are very rigid and, um, you know, kind of codified in the way that they deal with content. Yeah, but then, but then that really serves you, right, moving forward, because now you're able to take this experience because it's very broad, working at a company so large as YouTube and one that's constantly getting all of this data to something a little bit more streamlined like ToonSat. You know, when you started working there, you took that same experience you had. Totally. Dilled it down and said, oh, I can, if I can do this at YouTube, I can do this here. So I'm really interested to how that transitioned, not only to the, to the research piece, but then you started doing more of the project management piece. How did that come about? Yeah, you know, it, it was another situation where I had to campaign for it for myself, just like at downtown where I was like, please hire me, please hire me, please hire me. And everyone's like, why? Until they were like, actually, we do need somebody. So we'll give you a small paycheck so you can shut up and just sit there. <laughs> and at Toonsat, the, the thing was, I kind of came over, I, I was at YouTube for a year, and then I was doing some freelance work for um, Bobby Haber and Joanne Abbott Green, Joanne being an alumna of NYU um, and Bobby being the uh, original founder of CMJ. Um, and they've been longtime friends ever since I crossed their paths at an NYU like student alumni situation. Um, and so I was doing a little bit of uh, work for them when they were between uh, after CMJ and before launching Mondo, which is now a major conference in New York. Um, and then after that contract ran out, um, and I was still managing Kevin and I think maybe one or two other artists at the time, but, um, it came time for me to get another full-time job and start paying some bills again. And I found ToonSat looking for almost identical skills that I was practicing at YouTube. And the thing at YouTube was we were looking for who owned the music that was on the platform, 
um, and how we could get money out the door to them. The thing at TuneSat was we represented the music owners. We needed to find who was using the music right. and compare it against licensing records and see if we could find anybody who was using music without a license and then ask them to pay up. And, you know, I think the company and the work that we did kind of had a reputation, I think, in, in like trade press for being like copyright trolls. But that really wasn't the heart of it. The heart of it was always we represent people who worked really hard to create these production music libraries and in some some senses some pop music, too. And it's being used by companies that absolutely should know better. I mean, like major Fortune 500 companies just using music that they not only have a license that expired and never renewed, but like never had a license to begin with. And it's right. sort of baffling that they kind of took that tack. And so I was part of a team of, um, you know, you can call it research, music researchers who were intimately familiar with the music in our catalog and going through gobs and gobs of scanned data, uh, TV data, which TuneSat originally specialized in, and then internet data. So basically TuneSat had built a proprietary, you know, version of con YouTube content ID, if you will. And mm. so using that proprietary version instead of the YouTube version, we could find a different slice of the puzzle pieces and uh, address them sort of proactively and on a proprietary methodology. And so we were looking at all this data and comparing it against various records. And so it was a combination of music rights and um, copyright uh, lawyer practice in a sense. And um, that I did that for about, I think it was a year, year and a half um, before I started asking like, listen, you know, there's all kinds of ways that we can be more effective and more efficient doing this. And um, we had just started talking about um, developing a proprietary software that was custom to that specific line of business, as opposed to using some, hmm. some something off the shelf and trying to retrofit it. Right. Um, I mean, any number of CRM tools could essentially do that task, but there was something very specific about how we wanted to approach it that no platform could really satisfy. So we decided to build our own and it was a big undertaking. And it turned out that through a combination of the diplomatic skills I learned being an artist manager, the rights management skills I learned at YouTube and in school and on that job and just building, you know, some good uh, collegial friendships at a small company. I think the rights management team of TuneSat was nine or 10 people. It's even smaller than downtown was. Um, I just made good friends with people and just wanted to kind of like have a good time working and not like dislike the people I was sitting around. And so- right. With those factors, I, I made the sort of case to the chief legal officer who oversaw the rights management department. And I said, if we're building this thing, somebody's going to need to know, number one, how all the research happens, number two, how the tool works intimately, and number three, um, how to convey this information to the legal team. There was like three or four attorneys that worked on staff and how to convey their information back to the research and technology teams. Mm. This platform doesn't work because, okay, well, let's drill down and understand this from like a bug perspective, or this is what this tool is meant to do. That's why it's not doing what you want it to do. We can redesign it, or you can learn to use it the way that it was developed. We got to pick a path here. And so I became sort of the uh, liaison and right. stylized it through a title that I kind of invented out of thin air. We had um, like a like a director of technology and strategy 
And I was like, well, this is a project. And so it's manager. I want like a bump up in title, strategic mm-hmm. project manager. And I just, yeah. I didn't even know what that meant. And I like, in retrospect, like it has a meaning. And I didn't know that at the time. And I just wedged these words together and said, I want to be this. That's and they're so like, weird. they're like, well, we'll give you a small pay bump and a title rise and you can stick around for another year <laughs> and, yeah. and help us with this. And I was like, great, sold, I'm in. And, uh, and so, yeah, so that then became after that, like the longest job I had had at that point. Um, and I got very deeply involved in, um, bug tracking. I learned a little bit about how Python and JavaScript mm-hmm. work. Um, that was my first experience really working with developers in a direct way, as opposed to sort of like just hearing them talk across the office at YouTube. Um, yeah, it was really a, an exciting time. And I, you know, I think I had a very unique experience that maybe some of my colleagues didn't get to have. That is because it's such a, it's so unique and it's so technical because now you're having to almost, you're delivering the language to developers in a way to help them understand what you need to build. I mean, that's a real skill that takes a lot of time to develop. And I'm sure it just took a lot of just you just like taking your passion and your knowledge and just day by day growing on how do I talk to these, these developers to get the product that we want. So you're literally like manifesting what that job actually is because there are people that there are people in other industries that were doing all of that stuff, whether it be agile, being a scrum master or doing agile or anything like that, you were basically by doing and learning yourself, creating that position and stepping into totally. Yeah, I had no idea of no concept of any of that stuff. It wasn't until way later that I had any sense that that was a thing. And, um, you know, I think that's sort of like a, I don't want to compare myself necessarily directly to the the skills of these people, but you think of like, historically, Miles Davis had terrible form as a trumpet player. Tiger Woods, terrible form as a golfer, both like absolute greatest in their respective areas. And so like, to me, I never look at like bad technical form as that much of a problem if the practical application can be really good, if that makes sense. Obviously, you don't want to have it be like actively detrimental as a technical form, but your understanding and being religious about the technicalities doesn't necessarily need to be um, the religion you subscribe to if the practical outcome is exactly what needs to happen, right? So, um, I definitely didn't know at the time that I was going into it that like it was going to become technical or that it was going to be like, I just sort of like wanted to do something bigger and more important than what I felt I was doing. And it turned out that the pathway to do that was to kind of like wedge myself in front of the software developers and say, this is why this doesn't work from like a music perspective. Like it has to kind of behave this way. Otherwise we're getting the words all wrong and they don't actually connect. Like that word doesn't connect to that word the way you think it does. It means something else in our parlance. And then same thing with the lawyers, like you guys are speaking in obviously a very technical language and we need to make sure that, you know, we're talking about the right things and we're not just throwing words around thinking we know what they mean. Like I've heard this from a number of lawyers. I don't know what, good faith effort means in a legal term, like it means something, right? And I never get it right. And they always say like, that's not what that means. Please strike that from the contract. (laughs) And it's like, you know, if we don't have somebody that can tell us that, and then somebody who can kind of translate that to like technical direction, we're never going to be able to come to the middle and get this thing done. And so that sort of like brokering of differing experiences and opinions was 
became something that I took with me and um, has become a big sort of factor in how I deal with a lot of diverse opinions and, and wants and needs um, in some of the work that I'm doing now. Yeah, let's, I mean, that's a great segue. So, so let's get to, to that work because everything has been kind of building up to this. So after, after Toonset, you know, you begin to do your own consulting, um, but then also, you know, you step into this role at Studio 71 to do music operations. So take me home and take me there, you know, tell us about <laughs> Studio 71, what that is, and tell us what music operations means in that context. Yeah. Oh, man. So I, uh, I felt it was time for me to make a change. I was like, maybe I don't want to be in New York anymore. And uh, kind of as soon as I opened my mind to moving to LA, I saw a job that was kind of, it, it almost seemed tailor-made for me. It's one of those things where like the universe is sending you a sign. Yes. And I had applied. And when I got the first interview, I was very straight up and I said, you guys don't realize this, but you're hiring for three different roles. Mm -hmm. I can do each of those three roles, but you need to understand that those are three different jobs. And we're going to have to have a conversation about how that looks like long-term, because this is going to be something that very quickly is going to get out of hand if it goes right. If everything goes according to plan, it's going to become too much for one person to handle. Uh, but in the meantime, if you want, I'm happy to come and do it. And they were like, great, cool. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, they were very sort of, um, uh, honest and transparent about the fact that like, yeah, no, we don't, we don't understand music rights. And so you're correct that we don't necessarily know what we wrote in that job description so much that we wrote it. Um, and so we do need somebody that knows how that all kind of fits together and can come in and uh, show us how that's done. So uh, very boldly, again, with my ego fully intact after that, I uh, moved to LA and started basically um, establishing a framework for the music creators that Studio 71 has worked with for a long time and continues to work with today um, to help cover song creators, especially get a leg up on the platform. It's the kind of thing where the rights administration is so self-service and there's so little um, relationship development going on across various parts of the industry that it's easy for two people to run into each other and not necessarily optimize for each other's success because they're looking at it as I need to get mine. And that means you can't get yours instead of two people trying to win together. And so I was looking at sort of the, the lay of the land that I was coming into and started to really have conversations with the people that I was working with about what it means to have music rights. And here's how this platform works. I worked at YouTube. I worked with YouTube at TuneSat, and now I am working basically on YouTube rights stuff and, and content management stuff here at Studio 71. Here's what we need to do. And so I just set off independently with no direction, building relationships with publishers, We're trying to reach out and just talk to whoever, Who are, who's my counterpart? I'm doing music rights at Studio 71. Who's doing music rights at Sony ATV? Who's doing music rights at Universal Music Publishing Group? Who's doing music rights at CD Baby or AWOL? Let me talk to the people that do my job there. Let's build sort of like a little, you know, uh, friendship going on. Right. Um, and that way I know that when something comes up, I can just reach out to you directly. I can just have that conversation with you. And it doesn't need to be behind anonymous aliases that we're sending emails past each other, like cannonballs across the bow, right? Like we're actually having a conversation. And so for the first time, after like six months of relationship building and just kind of like reformatting how we even collect the music files from artists, um, 
it became this thing where we could really have a conversation of, listen, uh, publisher X, if you use YouTube correctly to administer your rights as a facet of our content instead of independently and on top of our creator's video where they get disadvantaged from a monetization perspective, I will show you all the other music in our catalog. I will show you the titles. I will show you the artists. I will include the links. You can go and review it. I want you to know where your songs exist in our catalog because we focus and specialize in cover songs. Your stuff is here that you don't know about it. If you do me this one favor, I will show you everything else and you can go get your piece from all these other things that you have not Mm. yet claimed your piece of. And they Mm. said, that sounds good, but it sounds like a lot of work. And so for the last three or four years, we've been sort of developing what this interpersonal practice of like, if I show you all 30,000 songs in our catalog every time, it's going to be overwhelming. You're never going to take any action and you're never going to see the benefit. You're just going to see this as a a big file in your inbox. If we talk about, well, here's specifically the songs that don't have their ownership rights applied, or here's, you know, seven videos where we see you're claiming the video, but you're also not collecting your publishing royalties from the back end like YouTube wants you to. Can you just like focus on these ones for now? We'll bring you more next month and have that sort of rhythm going. And so that was something that I established 2019, early 2020, and um, now has become part and parcel of what we do from a content operations as a whole perspective, which is, you know, originally content operations being how do we understand the rules of the platform and make sure that the content that our creators are are uploading doesn't violate those rules or doesn't get them in trouble or doesn't lose the monetization because we as a company rely on them monetizing, not getting demonetized. Meanwhile, music creators on the other side are grossly under monetized. How do we lift the tide for them? How do we do that in a way that is um, advantaging them and makes us as a company look like the only people that really know how to get 100% of the juice for the squeeze? And it's right. been years of effort, but now music has really become a, a significant factor in the content operations um, portfolio, if you will, at Studio 71. Um, music is far and away the more complicated area of copyright because you have the layers of composition, sound recording, and also music video right. mm-hmm. as a self-expressed piece. Meanwhile, on the video side, you really just have the video, especially with a vlog or unscripted content. There's not a literary right that's baked into it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very simple and very streamlined um, and music is not. So as far as like the 80, 20 of our work, it's definitely leaning towards the music side. Um, it's not obviously the biggest part of our network. We're talking, we have like major family channels, major vloggers, beauty influencers and things like that that drive a ton of revenue. But the music side, it has been such a growth area for us the last few years that we're really proud to kind of stand up in public in front of other creators that we're trying to sign and say, listen, we do this better than anybody. And the reason we do this better than anybody is because we've spent so much time getting really good at this and teaching people internally how to facilitate this for you. Meanwhile, other companies, sure, they've invested their time and energy and resources and personnel on other things. And they might do those things better than us, but they do not do this better than we do. Mm. So, just to get kind of granular with this, mm-hmm. when you say in, in the Studio 71 world, when you say creator or influencer, talking about you know YouTube and music and this type of thing, what do you mean by that? Are you talking about you know the, the independent musicians that are coming up and putting out videos or, or do you mean the artists that are doing covers on YouTube and, and trying to go ahead and get their names out by just performing music that way? Like, what do you mean when you say creator? 
all of the above. I mean, I think that, so this is actually funny, but coming from a traditional music industry mindset, it took me several months to stop saying artist and start saying mm -hmm. creator. Mm -hmm. Like everyone talks about like, oh yeah, my artist this, or their artist that. And, and they mean it kind of, you know, synonymous with client, but they say artist or project instead of album, right? Like we have this sort of jargon that we follow as, as operators in the music industry. And so I was saying like, oh yeah, this artist has this project. And they're like, what are you talking about? Oh no, sorry. This creator has this album. Uh, they're making a bunch of videos and a bunch of songs. And they're like, oh, I get it. The creator, the, the client is, is uploading a bunch of content. Um, and so I've kind of fallen into that parlance now of saying creator. And that could be, that's ambiguous. It means kind of everything because technically my, my remit covers everything, but um, I also use it as fluidly to talk about artists and the music that they're making as content, because it kind of, one of the things that I've realized, especially in the last six-ish, nine-ish months, is that if we're really going to treat music artists and especially cover song artists who don't own the composition, but they absolutely own their video and they absolutely own their sound recording. And there's a misconception that they're not able to monetize. If we're going to give them the dignity and respect that they deserve for their incredible creative input. I mean, we look at somebody like Pomplamoose or Scary Pockets, which is the offshoot of Pomplamoose run by Jack Conti. Unbelievably unique cover versions of some of the biggest songs in history, right? right? Like they sound nothing like the original. They are in themselves original arrangements and recordings. They own these rights. They're highly used in other people's videos. We collect a lot from user generated content, people using their music, even though it's not their song. We share the royalties with the publishers. Getting those creators and those artists the sort of attention and um, respect they deserve as creative mm -hmm. uh, people is really important to me. I come from being an independent artist as a kid. I never really thought like I wanted to sign to a label. If I'm going to be in a band, I want to be independent. And a lot of the artists that I've worked with have also kind of like held that same mentality. You know, even the one, there's been a couple that have done major label deals. And even those ones are like, well, I want to maintain my peace and I want to have my control and I want to do my thing. I just want to have their support, which is a great way to look at it. Um, so, mm working with especially artists that thrive on youtube it's largely considered ancillary by the traditional music industry because of the per stream rates being a lot lower than apple or spotify even but for us it's where our core is and so these artists maybe have two or three million subscribers on youtube and 20 or thirty thousand monthly listeners on spotify like there's it's not even a comparison they're making far and away more money on youtube mm. by orders of magnitude than they are from any other platform and so it's far from ancillary. If anything, the entire rest of the music ecosystem is ancillary to them. Right. And so we treat them as YouTube creators first and foremost, and that allows their careers to thrive and for us to help support and develop their business. And when we think about music in the same breath as creators that you might think more of as like TikTokers or Instagram influencers or uh, travel vloggers on YouTube or anything like that, what we right. find is that it's a more natural fit in terms of understanding how their business works instead of this division that we have with artists that take a long time to make records and then put them out and promote them for a long time and go on tour and all that kind of stuff. The artists that we work with are doing one video a week. They're releasing content constantly and it's mostly through a video lens and like labels and distribution systems are not set up to take that kind of volume of videos the video is a promotional tool for the the record and the record's a promotional tool for the tour now meanwhile for us the video is where the money is and so it's a very very different strategy if we look at it from the perspective of like 
oh yes, uh, Jonathan Young and Caleb Hiles are going to do a uh, collab video. We would call mm-hmm. it a duet or even a feature single. No, they're doing a collab video and they're doing it, you know, next week. And they've got like three other things lined up. They're doing a whole album of things. Uh, and it's not different than like, you know, a family vlogger doing something with a beauty vlogger and like, oh, your best, you know, makeup looks for, you know, rushing out the door with your toddler or your best fit for being comfy, you know, at the, you know, the preschool pickup or whatever. Like those are like collab videos that you can conceive of. And it's not different for the music stuff. If you just kind of zoom out far enough. Man, it's just so fascinating. And then in this you know, at this company in this role, you've basically been able to take all of that experience and then really just build and own this role and kind of build it up to what it is today with you as a senior director. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in reflection, it feels like the through line was really clear. And it felt like a lot of hills and valleys along the way, but as with any like growth chart, if you look at like a stock market chart, like it's a lots of, lots of peaks and valleys, man, but it generally goes up and to the right. And I feel really, really lucky that that's been the trajectory of my career too. It's been up and to the right. And I was really worried. And I mentioned this before, I was really worried that the education that I got was going to box me in because it was so specific about concert management and music publishing and um, you know, digital marketing for music and things like that. And come to find a lot of those things are, are just contextual. They're not actually limited and they come into practice every day. And especially the, the more work that I do and the more that I sort of teach, uh, and mentor some of the associates on my team and other people in the company who don't understand how it works, but they want to work with music creators that they find exciting. And I got to teach them like music rights 101 and how we're going to take care of everything for them. The more I learn, like my role is very operational and very uh, much as a steward for these creators. Um, I've never thought of myself as a marketer. I've never thought of myself as like a salesperson per se. And so that's frankly, a lot of the ways in which I struggled as an artist manager was not being able to come up with like the viral idea that was going to blow up the record, Mm, right? Like that was always so hard for me. I was like, (laughs) no, that's why we need a marketing person or a a publicist or something like I'm going to set up your publishing admin. I'm going to take care of like the deal is going to be the best deal that's ever been done. Like all these things, but they're so system oriented or so operational. And I embrace that now a lot more than I used to. And I see my, uh, my work reflecting that I, I think at the most I ever managed as an artist manager was like six at one time. And that was too much. And that was like the upper limit of what I could take as a personal uh, relationship. And one of the things I realized when I was moving to LA and I wanted to get into this, you know, really kind of open myself up to this work was I need to focus on the things I'm really good at for as many people as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. And that has direct echoes to my decision freshman year of college when I was like, I need to stop thinking I'm going to be an artist and start being somebody who's going to support artists, knowing what they know, talking like they talk, but knowing the business as well and being able to help them. And so that's how I got into artist management and just kind of like, I want to, I want to just use what I know and speak the language, but like be a supportive figure in that. And I got into artist management and then I got into this and it's like, okay, I'm not working with three to six artists. I'm working with like, 150 to 300 right. music artists plus another right. 600 non-music artists. Right. Um, if you look at it from the artistic perspective, like everybody's making like movies for the internet, right? Or TV shows for the internet. If you think of it that way, it's very artistic. And um, 
And so now I get the uh, ability to kind of use my tools and use my skills to do all that good work. And, you know, I think whatever comes next in my career, wherever the future takes me, it's going to be continuing to double down on the things I'm good at, the things I know I'm, I'm really building strengths around systems and business operations and um, intellectual property structures and, and how that kind of plays into the commerce uh, of, of entertainment and just keep trying to help as many people broadly as possible. And I don't know what that looks like. Maybe it's like a platform thing where there's like millions of users and I can help millions right. of people instead of just hundreds of people. That would be incredibly exciting, but also very daunting. But, you know, <laughs> we'll let the future play out. Yeah, absolutely. Because obviously the song and the art is important, but equally important is you need that. You need people who are establishing the backbone of, the, of those things and the structure of those things. And you're bringing an important piece to something that is, is only going to get bigger and, and is needed for creators to have the structure that they need to be successful. So, it's such a crazy oh, time yeah. in this part of the business. And, and you know, the, everyone reads the news about TikTok and Meta and Apple doing a headset and like all this kind of crazy stuff. Like it's about to get so fascinating in the creator economy as we know it. And I'm really excited to be part of that journey. So I'm, I'm ready to ride. Sam, this leads to my last two questions that I okay. love to ask my guests. And you, you've segued, you've done like three or four, this has just been a great conversation, Sam. <laughs> you've done three or four natural segues. It's just oh, all- I'm cool. glad. So you talked about just with the headsets and the things that are coming. What are you most curious about right now? Um, a lot of the, a lot of my attention right now is going to how to make more happen with less. Um, it doesn't matter how big your company is. There's always a limit to the resources you have at your disposal. Mm -hmm. uh, even people at Amazon or Google, number one, are potentially subject to layoffs. And number two, uh, even before that, you got to get budget approvals and budget approval could be told no. Right. right. And so you got to be able to figure out how to make something good happen with what's at your disposal. And in a lot of cases, it's like next to nothing at your disposal. And so a lot of what I'm looking at now um, revolves around obviously like AI and generative language models, things that are not necessarily, I'm not that interested in how they're used for creating music, although I think that's a perfectly appropriate application. We've had sequencers and, you know, uh, synthesizers and all kinds of stuff for decades. It's not scary to me. It's exciting. But the thing that's really kind of got my focus is how do we use these tools and the building blocks of the internet, thinking like code and software development, how do we use generative language to develop new tools and infrastructure that makes it faster and easier for creators to assert their rights, um, put things out into the world. Um, so things like video editing with AI is really interesting to me. Uh, music editing for sure. Um, music distribution through the lens of um, rapid development and infrastructure. So like mm -hmm. DistroKid and TuneCore obviously are great self-service platforms. They've spent a ton of time and energy and money in building their infrastructure. I was just having this conversation with somebody today. We can now build that on my laptop with an AI kind of running an automation tool like Zapier or make.com. Mm -hmm. Like we don't need a fleet of developers anymore. We can just set up a sequence that runs. If you submit through this form, it will take care of all the delivery to the specifications of DDEX, out to the platforms through FTP. Like it can all be done through really tightly developed, but 
low code developed systems. And to me, that's the coolest thing that I could possibly have thought of. Yeah, I mean, the implication of that moving forward is just massive. I mean, imagine if you could just self-distribute without even having to go to DistroKid. Yeah, absolutely. You get then, far more support. <laughs> you get far more support. And, and then, and then, you know what's funny with that is because then we're really going back to, you know, the basics of it's really about the artist building the right team and the infrastructure, using that word again, behind them to be able to be successful as an artist and run their business. So things become more self-contained. And while it may take a little longer to build and scale because teams have to go in stages, small to large, what have you, you might not have the same resources, but you're keeping all of the, you're keeping all of the profit, you're keeping everything in house, then you're able to really build your musical and your mm -hmm. creative team to your liking because now you know i always what's, what's funny is i uh when i was a student i got the opportunity to do some kind of like backstage experience uh bon jovi was doing a tour and they were reaching out to local universities to be like isn't it cool how a tour comes together and come look <laughs> at how this crew works and it was really cool to me um but what became evident in, in sort of talking about some things was like bon jovi doesn't have a manager bon jovi has employees and mm -hmm. they serve the management functions. Yes. And then I found out later on, Bruno Mars uh, had dropped his manager and did the same thing. He mm -hmm. hired somebody to take on a management function because 15% was really expensive. 150K was nothing to him, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, it just strategically makes sense at that scale. But I'm wondering like how other artists can be chairman of their own board instead yes. of a product that a bunch of people are trying to take a piece of. And so that's very much where I come from mindset wise. And so a lot of the things that I pay attention to, just like you said, how can artists keep more of the pie and how can they have the tools and infrastructure that would usually come with a much larger system? Yeah, Sam, we're going to have to, you have to take this conversation offline, you and I. I like how we're connected. <laughs> my final question, again, mm -hmm. I love to ask this of all my guests, Sam, if you could go back and talk to yourself on the first day that you started the program, what would you say to yourself? Um, I would say, don't hold so tightly to what you think is going to happen. Mm, um, what I've found, and I, I just did a bunch of inter intern interviews, um, and the intern season has just begun, so this is kind of fresh in my mind, but I realize as I'm talking to some of these students that they tend to fall into one or two buckets pretty cleanly. One bucket where... Um, they have a really strong sense of passion and mission, but not a clear idea of how that arrives into the world and how to actually put that to work and find a job that meets that vision, which can be detrimental in the beginning because you start to get dispirited like this job doesn't actually meet the mission or the passion that I have to help people or do whatever it is that I really want to do. And so I get dissuaded from going forward. But um, ultimately, if you are mission driven, you will arrive at a place where you can fulfill that mission. The second bucket is students who are so hard and fast in their crystallized sense of self and who they think they are and exactly what they're going to be in the future. And while that means that it's very easy for them to find a lane early on, it really sets them up for um, a rude awakening when they realize that life does not go in a straight line. Life mm. does not follow the path you set out and you have to be adaptable and flexible Otherwise, you're going to be really stuck at some point or perhaps like completely broken in terms of your sense of self. And I fall into that second bucket. I was so committed to being like David Geffen, Scooter Braun, legendary manager turned label boss kind of thing. And that's like the mm. farthest thing from what I want right now. 
And um, there's so much sacrifice and so much uh, uniqueness that is required in order to achieve that. And the conditions in the industry have to be just right. The timing has to be perfect. You cannot replicate that. And I'm very much the kind of person where I want to be able to have control over the things that I accomplish. And so realizing like I couldn't manifest that out of thin air, I had to kind of let go and figure out what was going to happen next. And that's when I started to think about like, maybe I need to figure out my path and move to LA and do something different, and open up my eyes a little bit more. Um, and that's roughly the time that I stopped managing artists too. It was like 2019 into 2021, kind of like on a slow burnout basis. Um, and I couldn't have, I couldn't be happier with the choice that I made to do that because it allows me so much more clarity of focus and sense of self than I've ever had. And so I would go back and tell my myself, my very ambitious, high-minded, egotistical self uh, in September 20, uh, 2010, like, follow the path before you. Don't worry about where it takes you. Wise words from a wise man. Oh, thank everyone, you. <laughs> everyone, that is sam tall senior director of music and content operations at studio 71 sam thank you so much for coming on the show this was an amazing conversation oh thank you so well thank you for having a platform bryce i mean this is such a valuable place to share information and i hope that some of the listeners are going to get something out of this yes and and i think they will and matter of fact i don't think they will sam i know they will because <laughs> it's very had kind. a great conversation and a lot of gems up in here so um, thank you everyone for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. There will be m more episodes in the future. Um, but until then, take care and be well. You can follow me on Twitter at BryceB88 and we will see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of People From The Program. Be sure to check us out anywhere you listen to your podcasts and stay tuned for future episodes of the show. 